Father, I pray that as we just open your word, I pray that you would help us to gain a, a fresh insight and understanding and refreshment into just what the scriptures would teach us and what they would have for us. Um, God, in, in every way, we want to put ourselves under your word, and we so long, particularly here as we're studying the book of Acts, to experience among us what they experienced in the book of Acts when your spirit was among them in, uh, in a full and deep way. May your spirit be among us in a full and deep way as well. So help us to have open minds, open ears, to hear your word, and uh, rejoice in the gospel that it is the fact that the Holy God in love became perfect man to bear my blame. That on the cross, <clears throat> condemned he stood, and by his death, uh, I live again. And so in that, oh God, we do, we do rejoice, and yet I pray also just in ways where we can grow in our community. I pray that you would help us grow in that way as we pray your blessing upon this morning, upon our fellowship afterwards. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, well, uh, last week I, I spoke about the amazing revival that took place in 1949 in Los Angeles. Uh, the, the meetings with Billy Graham were scheduled there to meet for only three weeks in Los Angeles, but because of the, the huge response and because of the people coming, they extended it another week and then another week and another week and another week. In all, five weeks extension, they extended it. So at eight weeks in all, they had this evangelistic campaign with the, the Canvas Cathedral where thousands of people came every night. Um, I think they had some... 56, 72 meetings or something like that, that just every night as they came, twice on Sundays, they would meet together. Some 3,000 people made decisions for Christ during those days. As I said last week, right, we know what happened as a result of that to Billy Graham. This became the watershed moment for his ministry because this is the ministry with all of the popularity that really thrust him into the national spotlight, even into the international spotlight as he went on from there. Um, But one of the things we don't know is what happened to the 3,000 people who came forward. I mean, we, we have no idea uh, about them, but we know a little bit about a few of them, uh, particularly some of the, the famous people who were converted during the campaign. In fact, one of them, the most famous perhaps, was Louis Zamperini, uh, who was seen here at the 1949 revival, and he had, uh, he had come forward. And I just want to no, I'm not sure if you uh, know about this book. How many of you know about this book? It's a really, it's a popular bestseller today. It's been made into a movie, um, and I know it's just a great book of, of redemption. It tells a story about Zamperini, who was a, an athlete in the 1936 Olympics in Berlin, where he, he got eighth place in the, the 5,000 meters, wanted to return for the 1940 Olympics, but was prevented from doing so because of the war because the Olympics were canceled. He joined the Army Air Corps, and he was, he was a bombardier, right, taking bombing training missions out, or missions out to bomb. Um, and, and he was on a search and rescue mission for a missing plane when his own plane had some mechanical difficulties, and the plane went down with eight people on board. And um, I'm sorry, 11 people on board. Eight of them died upon impact. Three of them survived. They managed to to get aboard a lifeboat and survive, surrounded by, by sharks, uh, even a heavy typhoon and uh, waves. They s- survived there for weeks. 
even being shot at by Japanese pilots. Uh, they did as they're right there in the open, unexposed, collecting rainwater. After 30 days, one of the men died. He was thrown overboard. And uh, the other two men, after 46 days, were picked up by some Japanese soldiers. This wasn't a rescue because they were taken right to the prisoner of war camp where they were brutally tortured for two years. Eventually, he was freed at the end of the year, two years later, um, and he came home a hero. But his life was far from settled. Though saved from the terrors of war, he had terrors within himself. He was disillusioned, broken in spirit. His marriage was on the rocks. His wife had told him that she was going to divorce him. And a strange thing happened. They were living in L.A., he and his wife Cynthia at the time, and Billy Graham had come with these crusades. And uh, she, Cynthia, had gone a few days earlier and and even had come forward to to Billy Graham's invitation to come forward and and trust in Jesus. And uh, she said to her husband, says, I've become a Christian. He says, I'm not going to divorce you. And so kind of sees a a little bit of a change there. But she begged him to come, and he refused. And she begged him to come again, and they argued. And finally, right, um, they went. He went. And that first night at the meeting, he stormed out of of the meeting, not wanting it. But on the second night that that he went, he gave his life to Christ. I want to just read for you from, from this book about his experience, because I think it's really powerful. It said, Cynthia, his wife, Kept her eyes on Louie all the way home. So there, there's a page or two talking about just the, the, the turmoil within him as he was deciding what, what to do for Christ. And said, so when they came home, they entered the apartment. Louie went straight to his cache of liquor. It was the time of night when, he, when the need usually took hold of him. But for the first time in years, Louie had no desire to drink. He carried the bottles to the kitchen sink, opened them, and poured their contents into the drain. And then he hurried through the apartment, gathering a pack of cigarettes, a secret stash of girly magazines, everything that was part of his ruined years. He heaved it all down the trash chute. In the morning, he woke finally cleansed. For the first time in five years, the bird hadn't come into his dreams. Now, the bird was the the Japanese torture of him, particularly like the commander, the one he most despised. He said he hadn't come into his dreams for the first time in five years. In fact, the bird would never come again. And Louis dug out the Bible that had been issued to him by the Air Corps and mailed to him by his, to, mailed to his mother when he was believed dead. He walked to the park where he and Cynthia had gone in better days and where Cynthia had gone alone when he'd been, bend, when he'd been on his benders. And he found a spot on a tree, sat down, and began reading. And resting in the shade and the stillness, Louis felt a profound peace. When he thought of his history, what resonated with him now was not all that he had suffered, but the divine love that he believed had intervened to save him. He was not the worthless, broken, forsaken man that Bird had striven to make of him. In a single silent moment, his rage, his fear, his humiliation, and helplessness had fallen away. That morning, he believed he was a, a new creation. Now, now, sadly, the, the book that I just read for you, this book here, and that's sort of almost the last chapter of where it ends. We've just got one, one more chapter, and, and we, wish we, we wish we could figure out more about his life, um, but we do know a little bit more about his life. Uh, two years after, the next year, in fact, 1950, he went to the Sugamo prison in Tokyo, where he spoke, spoke to those who tortured him while he was in prison. 
And he spoke to them about Christ with no bitterness in his heart, and some of them even received Jesus at that moment, became Christians. And, and with the help of Billy Graham, he became an evangelist himself and uh, spent really the rest of his life to serve at youth, at-risk youth for the rest of his life. And uh, that's just one. In fact, even as I was researching this, I I saw that in 1958, maybe, something like that, uh, Billy Graham had him up giving a testimony where he spoke about how much he had changed and how much the Lord had worked in his life and how he'd just given himself to working with youth who were at risk. Well, that's just one of the many people uh, who were impacted by the 1949 evangelistic campaign in Los Angeles. And, And maybe many other stories could be told. Of, of those, how those weeks in Los Angeles really impacted people for eternity. And really, that's how you measure revivals, right? You measure the revivals by the impact it makes on people. Not so much numbers, not so much decisions, because, quite frankly, numbers of people coming forward are super inflated when it comes to actually becoming Christians. Because many who make a decision for Jesus are no Christian at all, so they never count the cost they never really realize what it means to follow Jesus. It will take all of them. And uh, many people just caught up in the emotion of the moment, make some commitment that they, never, that they never keep. But you measure revival by the fruit in the lives of those who do believe, of those who do repent and come to faith, just like Louis Zamperini. Well, this morning, when we come to the book of Acts, we're going to see how people's lives were changed when they were converted under the preaching of Peter on the day of Pentecost. So if you haven't taken your Bibles yet, I invite you to open them into Acts chapter 2, is where we're going to be this morning. As we continue our way through the book of Acts, we're going to finish chapter 2. Next week we'll be in chapter 3. And, uh, and, and, and we're going to look here at this passage. And what's interesting about this passage, you have 3,000 people saved, and, and they're not scattered abroad. Rather, they are all together. Uh, The people who were saved at the Billy Graham Crusade in 1949 really just scattered. There was no one church in which they came into. There was no central place. And many people maybe travel from other places or all throughout Los Angeles. And and we have really no idea what happened to many of those those people. But here we see the testimony under the Spirit of God is that when 3,000 people are saved, they come right into the church and they, they begin just this, this time of community, this time of fellowship, this time of closeness. And that's what these verses describe, the, the fruit of community. And in fact, that's the title of my message this morning, Community in the Early Church. I want to read verses 42 through 47. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God And having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. From message this morning, I simply want to take these verses and just pull out characteristics of the community of the early church. And with the argument this, is that that what was true of the spirit-filled community then ought to be true of spirit-filled community today. First of all, here's what we see. We see devotion. 
I trust you see that there in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The early Christians were committed people. They were, as it says here, a devoted people. They were all in. They were fully engaged in this life of community together. They experienced the forgiveness of sins. All else of importance really really faded away, as that hymn says. I turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of the earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. In other words, right, seeing Jesus and understanding forgiveness and grace just makes a lot of things go away. It makes, makes the priority of the church utmost. They had a passion to pursue the Lord, and all they wanted to do was learn of him and experience Jesus. They wanted to be with God's people and worship the Lord. It's really typical of those who are first saved. Is that they were struggling in their lives before, but now they have freedom. And all they want to do is give themselves to their new life. And they want to learn from those who have been walking that life. And they want to be in a, in a pure, righteous community rather than being in the filthy community which they came from. They want to learn. They want to grow. They want to worship the Lord who, who saved them. Now, the four things that this early church devoted them to are, are the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer. And these things ought to be familiar to all of us, to most all of us. These are the four commitments that many of you, before I went on sabbatical, signed. And just said, I am willing, I'm desirous to formally express my commitment to these things. You're committing yourself. You're made to serve the body. Submit yourself to the teaching of the church. To share your lives with those in the church. To eat with others in the church. Remember Jesus. To pray with and for one another. Right, The things you're already doing. And membership at Rock Valley Bible Church is formally expressing everything that's happening right now, just so we can have a, a formal membership at a church. You remember that? We as elders haven't forgotten it. Um, there'll be a day, and in fact, I'd envisioned kind of coming back and having us all together, those who are saying, I want to formally say that Rock Valley Bible Church is my church, and I want to see who's around there to be a, a covenant community together. There was a, a day when I envisioned that would happen, and then coming back and seeing the reality of COVID-19, that we got people online, I haven't been to church in a long time, and rightly so. And I, I, if, you're, if they're online and they're not coming, I support them 100%. That's totally fine to do that. Um, and we've got people disjointed. Our small groups have kind of dwindled because gathering together is much more difficult. And so it doesn't seem quite right to us elders to, to have this big time when we're all gathering together when we're not really doing that. So when the COVID-19 crisis is over, we'll, we'll bring the, the formalization of church membership together, when we can be all together, right? And we all can be a happy family together uh, without this, this social distancing. Because it's interesting that you know, one of the things that Acts 2 is talking about is rather than a day of social distance, this is social intimacy. This is social closeness is what Acts 2.42 and following describe. And so that's what I think membership is all about. And so when, when the crisis is over, we'll be able to, to come together with all of that. And I'm looking forward to that day. We can really be with one another and be in others' homes much more, and we can have smaller groups easier and share what's going on in our lives. I look forward to the day when we're downstairs eating again, right? when that place is packed and there's lots of people there and there's lots of food there to be had and we're, we're close together. I look forward to that day. Uh, I look forward to the day when we can be together praying. And uh, when we can do those things freely, we will install our formal membership at church. Well, let's look through the things that they were committed to. They were committed to the apostles' teaching. 
They'd learned about Jesus. They'd heard about the Messiah. They trusted him, but they wanted more. Um, and they didn't have a New Testament to read. All they had was, was the teaching of the apostles. And so they, they went to the teaching of the apostles to guide them through the Old Testament. Because the New Testament really teaches about Jesus and how to interpret him. And that's, that's what the apostles were essentially doing and teaching them about Jesus. But that's all they had. And they were devoted to this. They were zealous about this. So they gathered and listened and learned. But today we have the New Testament. We have what the apostles taught to guide us. And so to be committed to the apostles' teaching is to be committed to the teaching of the New Testament. Everything it teaches about Jesus. Everything that Peter preached about Jesus. He lived a perfect life. He died a painful, shameful death due to the wrath of God for our sins. He was buried, and then he, yet third day he rose from the dead, and he ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And just the interpretation of everything on our lives is what the New Testament is about. And so by Sunday mornings, we're, we're committed to just teaching that and to, to digging that deep into our minds and our brains and into our hearts. That's why we encourage our Bible reading at Rock Valley Bible Church. We long for you to know and understand and love your Bible because that's the commitment of the early church, and that's a commitment that we want to share as well, the early church was committed to fellowship, devoted to fellowship. And I think the, the Christian church often gets this wrong. I simply believing that fellowship means standing around in some basement someplace with a, a cup of red juice in your hand uh, eating a cookie. And they say, oh, that's fellowship. What wonderful fellowship we had at church. Now, it's not that eating snacks and drinking punch isn't fellowship, but it's just that fellowship is far more than that. At least genuine fellowship is. Fellowship at its core meeting means sharing. And so genuine fellowship happens when you share your lives with those around you. <clears throat> and that's what the early church did. <clears throat> it says they, those who believed together had all things in common. It just, just That was uh, verse 44. Is, is that they had a, a commonality. Even their things they were sharing with, with people, sharing their lives, even to the point of selling their possessions to share with one another as any had need, verse 45. It's a picture of community. It's a picture of community in the early church. It's a picture that I long for us at Rock Valley Bible Church to have and see and experience and know. And I just tell you, this time of COVID has been difficult for me probably as a pastor just because it's so disjointed and so strange just the, the closeness of what maybe we once experienced, what we're aiming for has kind of been, been stopped or hauled or, or stopped or paused or placed on hold. Uh, just weird. Just weird for all of us. But thirdly, the early church was committed to the breaking of bread. It's difficult to know what this means. Um, there are many who believe that it's referring to the Lord's Supper when the church gathers all together to eat of the bread is literally what the Greek says. The breaking of the bread as if there is one loaf in remembrance of Jesus. Now, there were 3,000 people. I don't think they had a giant loaf for 3,000 people. I think it was just the, the bread that they, they broke. Some people believe that it is the Lord's Supper. Maybe. Some people believe that it simply means they share their meals together. So verse 46 seems to indicate day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They receive their food with gladness and generous hearts. So some say, well, this is just eating together. And uh, I think it would be wrong for us 
to say, oh, no, this is just the Lord's Supper. I mean, what, what, if, what if we're wrong? What if, what if we don't understand that correctly? And it says, oh, we just need to have the Lord's Supper together. Forget being in the homes. Or if we say, no, it just means in the homes. Well, it might mean the Lord's Supper. And I think both of those things are good for us. And both those things just help our, our, our fellowship, help our being together. And, and I think the, the early church was celebrating the Lord's Supper often. And, and I think they were with each other, as it says. They were in their homes, receiving their food in gladness. They, they were devoted to those things. They were, they were eating those things. And I think we ought to eat together. This is a way that, that, that ties you together when you're eating together over a meal. And so we should do that. And we should celebrate the Lord's Supper as well. Um, fourth thing here is prayer. Literally, it was the prayers, perhaps referring to the, the reference, the prayers in the temple. And next week, in fact, chapter 3 and verse 1, we're going to see Peter and John going to the temple at the hour of, the, of prayer, which is the, the ninth hour, about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It's the hour of prayer where you go to the temple and you, you pray. Perhaps it's uh, talking about the, the Jewish prayers that were prayed, but it was in the temples where the, the people of God were, and they always gathered there, 3 o'clock in the afternoon talk about that maybe that's a reference here but maybe beyond because when you look at the book of acts you see how christians were just committed completely to prayer in fact you read the book of acts and uh, you're overwhelmed in many ways with their commitment to prayer we saw a few weeks ago in acts chapter 1 and verse 14 it says uh, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer we see the early church gathering to pray together we see prayer meetings in chapter 4 and in chapter 12, where there was some event going on, and they gathered people together to pray as a church. That's what the early church was doing. In fact, the prayer meeting in chapter 4 was so powerful that when they finished, the place in which they prayed was shaken. They prayed together when seeking guidance, particularly about Matthias, uh, Judas, rather, who's he going to be replaced by? And, and uh, the Lord guided them to Matthias. They, they prayed when they were establishing leaders. They, they prayed when they're sending off missionaries. They, they prayed when they said goodbye with one another. They, they prayed in times of trouble. And, and I think that prayer, we as a church, a community in the church is devoted to prayer. I think Rock Valley Bible Church, we should be uh, devoted to prayer as well. And so I encourage you, in fact, even to encourage all of us in that, we're going to have a prayer workshop on Saturday. And, uh, in fact, uh, I would like Gary Lumberg to come up and tell us about uh, what, what's going to take place at the prayer workshop. Invite you all to say, you know what? The early church committed this. Let's be committed to this as well. So. Just briefly, this Saturday morning, so it's uh, November 14th, uh, here, probably in this room, we're going to have a prayer workshop just to learn, learn from each other and learn about uh, how to be better and better at prayer. And it's interesting, if you've been a Christian many years, uh, you may think, well, I've heard the sermons, but it, there's so much to know. This is a lifelong quest. Uh, one time I learned about prayer uh, two years ago when we were doing jail ministries, and the, the prisoners at the county jail uh, would uh, pray for each other. Sometimes they'd pray for, uh, pray for us, and I'd go home thinking, I don't think I've heard prayers like that in a very long time with excitement with joy, these, these, you know, these new Christians, they hadn't been listening to a lot of preachers pray, pray, most of them. And they just prayed for the blessing of God on, the, on their brothers in Christ and on the leaders. So with that, I invite you to come. We're going to start at 830. 
If you've got other things to do on Saturday and you have to leave, or well, maybe maybe 8:30 to 10:30. If you need to leave early, there'll be breaks. You can slip out. You got other things to do. Bring your Bible. Bring a notebook. Bring a testimony of how God has answered prayer in your life. Believe me, you have something to share that someone else will be blessed by who is going through a similar thing you tell how God has answered prayer. We invite everyone to come. And this is, I'd like to extend it even broader than you might imagine, teenagers to come. Moms and dads, everyone, let's uh, unite together in prayer and let God do some amazing things in our life. Well, that's our attempt, simply to say, you know what, we're weak at prayer. Let's try to make steps towards that. In fact, I would even encourage each of you to just kind of take inventory of your life. Like, if you look at those four things, like, where, where am I weak? There, there are certain people, you're gifted in a certain way. Like, um, think about some people maybe be introverts. They really love studying the Bible. That is wonderful. But fellowship requires a bit more extroversion, if you will. And uh, it may be that you need to maybe reduce your Bible study time a little bit and maybe get out and do some fellowshipping a little bit more. Or it may be that you're a real extrovert and you just love fellowship, but you know what, your Bible reading and study is not so much. And maybe it might be for you, you need to swing that way. And it may be in terms of just hospitality, bringing people to your house, that maybe that's just not a thing you've ever done or really done very much. Maybe, maybe that's an area of focus. Or maybe prayer is an area of focus. I just encourage you to just kind of look at those things, maybe graph where you are, and just say, you know what, the early church was all in on, on these things. And uh, I should be all in on, on all four of them as well. And, and, and this prayer workshop is just merely saying that, you know what, we as a church, we look at those things. I think, I think we get apostles' teaching. I think we're pretty good at that. I think uh, the fellowship, we're pretty good at that. You know, even eating, we, we're pretty good at that. I'm too good at that. And... Uh, but you know what? Prayer, we can grow in prayer. As Charles Spurgeon used to call prayer meetings, spare meetings. Oftentimes it's what our, our church is, and I just fear lack of prayerless, uh, prayerlessness in the home. So we're just, that's our effort. And if you don't hear us, then it's okay. We're just trying. Just trying. Just encourage you. Think about point of application. Which of those is weak for you? Um, all right. Early church community was devoted, just had devotion. Secondly, they were experiencing awe. This comes in verse 43. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. The word translated here, awe, literally means what? You got it in your footnote there? Who who used it first? What does it mean? What does it mean? Help. If you're in the, the spare room and yell really loud, I might be able to hear you. What does it mean? Fear. Fear. Good job, Thatcher. You just see it right there in your Bible. If you have an ESV, there's a, there's a little note there about what it, what it might mean. It might mean awe or it might mean fear. Fear is a literal translation, but it's translated awe because fear is not like fear of a ghost where you're like, oh, this is like, like in like, oh, that you know that you're in the presence of someone much, much bigger and larger than you. But, but one in which, as perfect love casts out fear, one in which right, there's not the, not the dread sort of fear, but more the awe, sort of like, like uh, amazing who God is. That's what they're experiencing with the Lord's work. In fact, they were experiencing the Lord's work. 
not buildings or, or programs. It was the work in God's people. You know, I just think even in a little way, maybe to illustrate this, um, you know, this past week at Rock Valley Bible Church, we held elections, and I, I told you about that last week, and they cleared out our auditorium here, and they, I just kind of took a picture of the people there voting here in our auditorium. Now, our building isn't so wonderful. We've made some improvements, right? It's better than it was. Amen? It's better than it was, and we're, we're working on that. We still have a third phase in terms of the, uh, the room near the uh, children's area where the, the nursery is and where the children's church is, and we'll, we'll get to that at some point, but... Uh, the election officials, I'm telling you, were quite impressed with our building. Just, it was clean. It was uh, nice for them, um, especially during a time of social distancing. They felt like, you know, this room worked out perfectly for them. And when I met with them on Monday night and just said, you know, just you can use whatever part of the building you want. And they, they just overabundantly expressing their thankfulness and, and uh, e- even the the, whatever, their head or their boss was visiting different places, making sure social distancing was okay, and was thoroughly impressed by our building. Uh, but our building's nothing, right? Imagine a huge cathedral, and, and people in awe and express of that, but that's not the awe here. Not that anyone's going to be awed of our building, but I'm just saying that that's the huge building. That's not what they're awed by. They're awed by the working of God and what he was doing in their lives, particularly here is witnessing the signs and wonders the apostles were doing. Now, we don't know all of the the signs and wonders the apostles were doing. In fact, Luke doesn't record very many of them. You you see that it's in the plural here, the the, the signs that they were doing and and the wonders. Like like there were were multiple of them right here in Jerusalem. Um, But when you get chapters 1 through 7, it talks about Acts in Jerusalem. There's really only one miracle mostly that we see. um, And that's the miracle of the lame man that we will look at next week. He was lame from birth, never walked. Peter comes to him and says, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to get up and walk. And he stooped down, he reached down, he picked him up, and he began walking and leaping and praising God. Here was this guy who had never walked before. He starts jumping around. He's not walking feebly as if his legs would be stiff. There's a total miracle. And and seeing that and seeing other miracles just like that, people rightly had a sense of fear, a, a sense of awe and the power of God that God can take a lame man and make him walk again. And through the book of Acts, we're going to see other miracles. We're going to see blind men giving sight. We're going to see dead people raised from the dead. We're going to see some pretty miraculous things. But that's really the, the one miracle before while they're in Jerusalem. But there were certainly many others. And I just say to myself, I've never witnessed this sort of power. Um, I don't think it's normative today. Because I've never seen it even on YouTube. I just haven't seen that sort of power in the name of Jesus Christ walk. I've seen some... Uh, Whatever televangelists try to do sort of that, and it's never scam is really what it is. Just don't see people like this. They don't see blind people instantly being made well, like the miracles in the Bible. Um, and I don't think it's, it's normative. God may do that. He's a big God. I just haven't seen it. But I think of these people who saw it, and they felt the power of God. And when we feel the power of God in our lives today, it's probably a little bit different. In fact, I've felt the power of God when, particularly when I've had a chance to share the gospel clearly with people, really to talk with them about their sin, and really to to give them Jesus in all of his grace, and urge them and plead with them to believe and trust in Jesus. At those points, I think I feel a little bit of a sense of the awe of God, seeing God work, and realize, especially when you share the gospel with someone, how, how just life is in a balance here. 
And, and, and I mean, it's, I'm not talking about different than just being salt and light and just, you know, living for Jesus and kind of speaking uh, lightly. But when you sit down with someone and really talk with someone, you know, for half an hour, for an hour and really process with them about Christ, I, I always go away from those those meetings trembling and realizing that, that God is at work and this life hangs in the balance between heaven and hell. And I always go away from there just praying and pleading that, that God would grant faith and that God would grant repentance and that God would bring that soul to himself. And at those times, I think I feel a sense of awe like the early church did. Or other times, maybe feel a sense of awe as maybe something stirs at Rock Valley Bible Church when the Lord brings a new believer into our midst. Or when uh, someone comes to faith here. Or when God is bringing a, a bunch of people all at the same time. We've had that on several occasions here at the church, right? Just We see God building his church, Jesus building his church as he promised. When, when just we, we, we get inundated in a month with five, six, seven new families like we've had before. That's not our norm. But many times when that happens, you just feel the, the awe of God, that God is working. And that God is doing something. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you know what I'm talking about? That seeing the work of God that drives you to this awe and fear of God that will drive you really to pray. And there's, there's nothing more invigorating than that. A fresh confidence that the Lord is with us and working among us. The early church community saw that as they saw the signs and wonders being done through the apostles. And I think that that same awe ought to be characteristic of us as well. Well, thirdly, we see the church displaying their generosity, verses 44 through 45. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And the picture here is what I call like perfect fellowship. Because fellowship is sharing and here is sharing to the uttermost. I mean, such was the excitement and enthusiasm of those of the early church that everyone was doing whatever it took to meet the needs of other people, even to the point of selling their possessions and selling their belongings and then giving to those who had need. And, and there are some people who look at this and argue for communism in the text. Um, that where we all pool our resources. Right? All across the country we pool our resources. And so we all give according to our ability into the common pot and everyone takes out of that common pot according to our needs, as if this mandates that. Or if you want to have like like perfect church, that's the thing to do. And I, I don't think communism is taught here at all. While it may sound wonderful in, in some ways, um, it's, it's not the reality of the early church. Um, it's not the exhortation of the apostles, just pool everything together. That's just not it. In fact, we see in chapter 5 when we get there, the Ananias and Sapphira... They sell this piece of property and, and they give it to the apostles to distribute the needs. Only the problem was that they gave back part of it and they said they gave all of it. The issue there was lying, not that they only gave part of it. In fact, then Peter, when he spoke to them about it, he tells them specifically that their property was theirs. They could do with that property as they'd wanted. And, and, and furthermore, even after they sold it, the proceeds were theirs to keep. They didn't have to give all the proceeds to the apostles. They, they could have kept some of them. The problem was they, they lied about it. And if ever there was a time for, for communism and a mandate to hold all our possessions in a common pot, it was right here. And Peter in Acts chapter 5 says that's not the case clearly. He's, he made it clear private property is a, is a good and proper thing. Yet, 
though, the thing that's non-negotiable here is generosity. Generosity doesn't exist in communism because giving is mandatory. You can't be generous if, you're, if you don't have the freedom to give away what you have. You realize that? That the only way to be generous is if you give it freely. Like, it's not generosity to pay your taxes. It's not generosity to pay all of your taxes. You must pay your taxes. And I think even this is where some, some churches get it wrong, where they, they demand a tithe. Oh, you got a tithe, you got a tithe. Well, if you're demanded and you're under compulsion to give a tithe, that's not generosity. That's giving what you have to give, what this law says you've got to do that. I think any giving should be freely, right? With no constraint, you just give as you want. And that's what we see here. We see the early church being generous, just seeking to provide for their neighbors. And that's what we're called to do. We're we're called to be generous. Now, the extent to which they were generous here may have been short-lived because the need may have been short-lived. So think about the context here. We've got Pentecost. And so we got people traveling from a, a distant, distant land or maybe from the next region over. Maybe they're coming from a long ways to come and celebrate the feast, according to Exodus 23, they're commanded to do in Jerusalem. And, and many came out of town. The feast, this, uh, the feast of Pentecost is like Thanksgiving. It's one day. And so they were planning, right, a day of travel, a day of feasting in Jerusalem, and a day of travel back. Or maybe they're planning for two days in Jerusalem. We don't know. Maybe to see a family member or something like that. Um, But there's no reason to believe that those who came to Jerusalem were prepared to stay more than a single day or two or whatever they'd had. But then revival broke out. And you know what happens when revival breaks out? You want to extend the campaign a week or another week. Or as they did in 1949 in Los Angeles for eight weeks. They totaled, they they held it all. And I think that there were many in town who had experienced revival for, for some days or maybe even weeks. And they'd come into town and were not prepared. They did not know this was going to happen. Maybe they made arrangements for the weekend, uh, bring enough food and clothes and money for, for that day of travel to Jerusalem, day in Jerusalem, and a tra- day of travel back, um, but not for weeks on end. Maybe for an extra day or two, but not this extended period that I think revival is happening in the church. And it may just be that those who had need were those who had just not planned to spend the extra time in Jerusalem. But seeing the power of God, they couldn't leave. In fact, which one of you would have left when you saw the power of God poured out in this way? We see 3,000 people come to believe in this Messiah, this Jesus. And these signs and wonders are being done. I'm not sure I would leave. And we don't know how many of these 3,000 were Jerusalem residents and how many of them were visiting from outside. And so it may have been just this short-term generosity where they're really, right, really helping people in a big way. Because of a great need at the moment. It might be, say, like a disaster today, right? When there are Christians faithful, there's some sort of disaster. Christians rise up in this, in this disaster to really to help them. Here it was a revival. I think they were rising up. But this short-term need here doesn't free us from generosity. Generosity is really, I would say, a foundation of the church. Because I, just, I know for a fact this church would never exist apart from the generosity of God's people. If there weren't generous people at Rock Valley Bible Church, this church would never have started. This church would never have continued on. This church would never have had a building. This church, maybe we'd be in a room someplace. Who knows? But it's the generosity of God's people. And I'm thankful for your generosity in giving to the church. 
but generosity in a community isn't only expressed by giving to the church so uh, we can have a building and employ a pastor. It's also giving just straight to others. Giving things, giving money to others. I exhort you, church family, just to be generous with what you have. Support the church, sure. Support missionaries, for sure. Uh, give to those in the body who have need. Give money, give food, give things. And we'll experience what the early church did in this way in which we are together. So my last point this morning is why see we see joy. We've seen the church filled with devotion in verse 42. We've seen the church experiencing the sense of awe in verse 43. We see them giving generosity, displaying that in verses 44 and 45. And now joy. 46 and 47. Listen for the joy. He says, and day by day... Attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, by way of outline here, I just picked out joy. I could have picked out togetherness, fellowship, but we already saw that in verse 42. But that's really what... What it was, they were in the temple together, verse 46. They were breaking bread together in the homes. There was this togetherness. I could have picked out that from here. I could have picked out the, the third point in generosity because that comes up at the end of verse 46, that they were, were received their food with gladness and they had generous hearts. So I could have just said generosity, but that was, verse, that was my third point and having the same point twice. It's not really good homiletics, not really good preaching. So we got joy here. Um, also, I could have put worship. Look at verse 47. They were praising God. Right, they were worshiping God. So I could have put four just that they were worship. They're worshiping. Or I could have even zeroed in on the blessing, having favor with all the people. Um, and, and particularly, I think even here, this, this phrase, it's going to be significant because they have favor at this moment in time. But go over to chapter 4 and that favor starts waning. And uh, it just starts building of, of, of increased opposition till the time of chapter 7. People had to get out of Jerusalem because it was dangerous. But at this point, there was favor. I could have spoken about that. Right? Point number four is, is favor rather than joy or, or blessing. But I chose joy because I think what it does, it just helps to summarize the way all those things took place. I think they were together with joy. I think they were, were generous with joy. I think they were praising God with joy. And I think that they were happy and contented with their favor among all the people. And I think that's the atmosphere, really, the early church community. Because nothing in those days was drudgery. They were together with gladness. They were generous with joy and joyful in their worship. And they were happy that God gave them this favor with the people. And, and I think I captured this a little bit because I so long that that would be the flavor of us at Rock Valley Bible Church. That we would have a culture of joy in our midst. That we would be a happy people. Um, I heard, I heard uh, someone talking about typical church people are often thieves. And that they take all the joy out of the church. Right? They come in frumpy and just create everything bad. This, this should be a, a joyful place. Maybe not a raucous party place, but a genuine happy place, like a, a place of contentment and a place of joy. Sort of like sort of like maybe a psychologist, right? Sits you on your bed and just says, okay, close your eyes and think of a happy place. Think of a joyful place. Think of a place where, where your cares are gone, where you enjoy, maybe with the people that you love. And what comes to mind, I pray, I hope, is Rock Valley Bible Church.
I think that's what came to mind in the life of these people here is that they had just this joy. It was the joy that kept them in Jerusalem rather than going away because they would have been disappointed to go away. But, but there's something happening here. I want to be here. Joy will bring you to where it is you want to go. And that's why they were in Jerusalem. That's why they, they stayed there. Now, when I talk about joy, I'm not talking about being a, a fake people. I'm not talking about this artificial smile, right? Rather, genuinely contented, satisfied people. That is a deep down joy. It's not without accident that the vision statement of our church is enjoying his grace. Joy is right in the middle of that. Enjoying. It's, it's delighting in the grace of God that we understand with salvation. That this would be a culture around us of joy. And uh, we do see that. That they were eating their, their food with glad and generous hearts. They were, they were happy. And I so want us to be a, a happy people like, like these people are. Right? That the people want to come to church and that the church becomes a blessing. That people want to be with the, the people of God. And I just say again, right, for COVID-19, this has been difficult because I think it's hard for us to so be joyful and be among people when we have the, the masks, which can be oppressive, can be difficult. But we're just following and seek what, what, we, what we should do. And, and I think of anybody, I think it's probably hit me more difficult than anybody, I, I, I tend to think, just because um, I'm the pastor, and so long for our church to be that, and so long for us to, to see the community, which has sort of been hit hard in these difficult days. And I love how verse 47 ends about seeing just God's sovereignty in light of the church, is that the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. So as the church was growing, who was responsible for the church growth? It's the Lord. It was the one who was adding. Right? He's the one who's responsible for that. He's the one who's just seeing their numbers growing day by day. Those who he was saving. Right? Those who were being saved. That's a, a passive tense. It's, you know That's why verse forty. Verse 40 is such a, it's a strange thing. It's save yourselves in this crooked generation. There's an active sense. But here in, chapter, in verse 47, there's this passive sense. These people who were being saved. Well, who's doing the saving? God is the one saving them and rescuing them. God is adding to their number day by day those who are being saved. And this, by the way, is the first progress report we see in the book of Acts. Um, I think there are another five of them afterwards. In chapter 6, verse 7, we see this progress report about how the, how the church is continuing to grow. In chapter 9 and verse 31, we see the church continuing to grow. In chapter 12, verse 24, the church continuing to grow. Chapter 16, verse 5, the church is continuing to grow. And then at the very end, right, the, the word of God is open and unhindered. And we'll just see those. That's like a, that's like a, a big signpost in the way of just how the church was growing. And, and that's why Acts is such an exciting church because everything's just growing and booming now, as I end, I want you to think about my message, all right? My message this morning has been, this is what the early church did. This is what we should be, all right? Now, one of the big challenges of the book of Acts is you always got to study it. What is, what is description? What's just describing? And what is prescription? What is telling us what to be? Because not everything in the book of Acts is prescription, right? We're not casting lots for leaders, chapter 1. Is this description or is this Prescription. In other words, is this just the early church? Is this just the church right after Pentecost? And we don't see that anymore? I think not. Over in chapter 4, you can even turn over there. In chapter 4 and beginning of verse 32, we read, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, 
And no one said that any of these things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to all who had need. So you see the, the closeness there and the togetherness, a lot of the, the same things in the early church. And so I would argue that what happened in Acts 2 continued on in Acts chapter 4. And I would just say, okay, well, let's think about how's the church. Is that, is that just only maybe for the New Testament times? I say no. Even in history is the case. I want to read for you a lengthy quote from the Apology of Aristides. Aristides was a, was a, a Greek um, who lived in the second century, so he lived in the 100s. So I'm not exactly sure when this was written, maybe 120, 170 A.D., somewhere in the, the second century. So this was 100 years later, and he describes the life of the Christians to his king. So it catches, he's not a believer, but he's telling the king what these Christians are like because the king is hearing about these Christians and, like, should he squash this movement? Should he persecute them? Like, what should he do? And here's Aristides, just a, um, just a, a man who can write. He's making a report, giving it to the king. And this is what he says about the church. And, oh, that a newspaper reporter from the Rockford Register Star would come to Rock Valley Bible Church, reporting to the mayor, saying, Mayor, this is what the people of Rock Valley Bible Church are like. And my argument is that that's exactly like what our text is describing. And that was true 100 years later, and it should be true 1,900 years later as well. Here's what Aristides wrote. He wrote this. They, Christians, do not worship idols made in the image of man. And whatsoever they would not that others should do unto them, they do not to others. And of the food which is consecrated to idols, they do not eat, for they are pure. And their oppressors, they appease, or comfort, and make them their friends, and they do good to their enemies. And their women, O king, are purest virgins, and their daughters are modest, and their men keep themselves from every unlawful union and from all uncleanliness in the hope of a recompense in the life to come in the other world. Further, if one or any of them have bondmen or bondwomen or children, through love towards them, they persuade them to become Christians. And when they have done so, they call them brethren without distinction. Slaves becoming Christian, they're brethren. They're just right there. They do not worship strange gods. And they go their way in all modesty and cheerfulness. There's the joy. Falsehood is not found among them, and they love one another. And from widows, they do not turn away their esteem. And they deliver the orphan from him who treats them harshly. And he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. For they do not call them brethren after the flesh, but brethren after the Spirit of God. It's talking about hospitality, bringing in people from other churches with with letters and notes and just say we need help. And whatever, whenever one of their poor passes from the world, each one of them, according to his ability, gives heed to him and carefully sees to his burial. Just honoring the body. It's made in the image of God. 
And if they hear that one of their numbers is imprisoned or afflicted on account of the name of their Messiah, all of them anxiously minister to his necessity, and if possible, to redeem him, they set him free. And if there is among them any that is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply their needy, their lack of food. They observe the precepts of their Messiah with much care, living justly and soberly as the Lord their God commanded them. Every morning and every hour, they give thanks and praise to God for his loving kindness towards them. And for their food and for the drink, they offer thanksgiving to him. And if any righteous man among them passes from the world, they rejoice and offer thanks to God. And they escort his body as if he were setting out from one place to another near. When a child has been born to one of them, they give thanks to God. And if moreover happen to die in childhood, they give thanks to God the more, for one has passed through the world without sins. It's not true that children sin, okay? But that's just his perspective. But further, if they see that any one of them dies in his ungodliness or in his sins, for him they grieve bitterly and sorrow as for one who goes to meet his doom In other words, they really believe this afterlife and will sorrow when people die in their sins. And then he concludes, Such, O king, is the commandment of the law of the Christians, and such is the manner of their life. May this be true of Rock Valley Bible Church. So let's pray. Father, Jesus said, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. And I I think of this apology, this uh, defense of Aristides as he wrote to his king about Christians and who they were. They basically demonstrated love towards one another. And it was clear, O God, that they are your disciples. And and I would pray even for us, especially this morning here at Rock Valley Bible Church, we think about the the community of the early church, which ought to be our community as well. Oh, God, I pray that you would so stir in our hearts to give us a a special spirit-filled unity, desire, togetherness, oneness here at Rock Valley Bible Church that betrays explanation, that nobody can explain it except the fact that we love Jesus and that we're seeking to walk in a, in, a, in a way that he would delight in. Submitting ourselves to these things of, uh, of a devotion to the apostles' teaching, breaking bread, fellowship, and prayer. And to an, an awe of walking in the fear of God. In such a way that we're generous with each other. And in such a way that we are joyful in our walk. God, I pray your mercy upon us, your grace, your stirring in all of us. God, to have this take place among us. And I know, God, why it's difficult sometimes. I know people's past experiences. I just even know of our experiences. And we've been super close with people. And then some sin has caused a rift between us. And they leave the church angry or upset. Words are spoken and it's hard. It's hard to want to love and be close again. And there's church hurt. God, I know that, and I pray you would overcome those things. I think there's personality as well. God, there's personality difficulties when when people just like to keep to themselves. I pray that you would stir in a heart that they would find joy in people and not in things. I 
pray, God, you'd help us always to align under your truth, that it might just never be just truth for truth's sake, but might really sink into our hearts. God, that we would live the truth, not just know the truth, that it wouldn't be just in our head, but it would be in our hearts that would come out and that we would worship you as a community. When we sing, we sing in awe that these things we sing are really true. God, so gladden our hearts, oh God, I pray, in these things. And conform us to the image of your Son and thereby produce in us a joyful church that you are building. And that's why we pray to you. that we just pleading that you would build Rock Valley Bible Church in the manner of the pattern of what we see here in the book of Acts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.